holy God, um, you are altogether wonderful. You are altogether faithful. You are so good to each and every one of us. And I, I know, God, I know theoretically and I know in part how much I resist that and how much I doubt that. And I imagine so many of my friends in this room do the same. I ask that your spirit would help us believe it tonight. As I talk about your scriptures, Father, as I, as I talk about the very words that your son said when he walked on this planet in the flesh, I know that they're challenging and I pray that you come in this in your power and you comfort and you remind people of how much you love them. That you would call us your children, that you would call us by name, that you would give us new names and new lives that you would want to actually be with, present with, live with every single person in this room. I pray that you bring dead things alive tonight in our minds and in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, we are three weeks into a sermon series in 1 John, and uh, the reason I, I, I'm so excited about this series um, for y'all is because I think what John is doing, I said this the first week, I think what John is doing in this letter we call 1 John is he's trying to, to talk to this community of Christians in Ephesus about uh, things that are stealing away their confidence, things that are making it hard for them to believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he did. And he's trying to like come in and affirm and breathe life into these places that they're, that they're struggling to have confidence in. And I thought, oh, I think it'd be awesome to spend five weeks addressing topics from this letter that, that might help communicate how you can have confidence in God's love for you and how you can have confidence in the things he's done for you. That's why we're choosing it today. We're talking about a topic uh, this week. I, I don't know, the next three weeks are, are, are all, um, there's this line that they kind of flirt with where it can be really encouraging or it can be overwhelmingly convicting. And I don't know which one's better. Um, I just wanna warn you. Um, for the next three weeks. So tonight, tonight the conversation is about loving each other. It's about fellowship. It's about life together, okay? Um, if you would, uh, Brother Daniel, would you put that text up, uh, the first one? This is from 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. I originally had 17 scripture passages that I was gonna use. I whittled it down to two. Um, <clears throat> so this feels weird to me to have one verse up right now. Uh, it's actually the entirely different verse than I wanted to use, but I think this is great. Um, so this is what John says um, in the middle of this letter. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Would you just leave that up for a while for me, but that'd be great. This is the message, that you should love one another. I think when John says this, I know, I know, it's not a guess. When John says this, that this is what we heard from the, from the beginning, what John is recalling in his mind is that unforgettable night, unforgettable night where Jesus had his last meal with his closest friends before he went to the cross. He's recalling that dinner time with his best friends. That's what he's calling. This night that we celebrate so often when we come together in our churches and maybe in our homes. That night where he shared his last meal before he suffered. Where he said to them that night, he said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. That's what he said to them. Right as they were getting up from dinner and walking apparently to a garden and he has this amazing dialogue with them. I encourage you to read it in John 13 through 17. I'd encourage you to read it. 
But as he gets up from dinner, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And so John, as he's writing to the people of Ephesus, probably something like 60 years later, 40, 50, 60 years later, somewhere in there, he says, this is the message we had from the beginning. And I can recall Jesus, I can recall my Lord, I can recall my friend standing up from his table and as we walked out, he stopped us and he said, a new command I give to you, love one another. And John goes, that's what we heard right from the beginning. Why didn't he say just love God? Why didn't he say just love me? This is the command I give you guys, love me. Why did he say love one another? And what does he mean by love? Why is this so important? If you, if you read the book of John, 1 John, if you've, read it, if you've read much of the New Testament, you'll find that the insistence keeps coming up, love one another, love one another, love one another all the time. Why push this so hard? Why is this a command? Why are all of the law and the prophets summed up in love God and love others? Why? Why? I, I can almost identify with why God might want us to love him because who among us doesn't want people to love us? That makes sense. Intuitively, for most of us, I think we could identify with a personal being that wants to be loved. But why does he, why does he, is it almost impossible? If you know the story, Jesus, or somebody asked Jesus once, what is the greatest commandment? And he summarized it with two, which is kind of frustrating, right? Well, which one's the greatest? And he goes, here's the greatest, love God, and the other one's like it. What do you mean the other one? I asked you for one. This is the greatest, love God and love others. Why does he insist on us loving others? And what does it mean to love others? What are we supposed to do? Love one another as I have loved you. I wanna say this um, because I think our culture makes this um, a really hard thing. I'm not sure it needed to be stressed so much in other cultures and other times and societies, but it sure does now. What does love mean? What does love mean? I don't think, and I, I, this might be offensive to some of you, and, and I don't just think this, I know this. It is not something that we get to define for ourselves. I don't get to say love for you is this and love for you is this. Certain books about love languages or, other, or certain cultures or groups talk about this is how I wanna be loved, this is what love means, this is what I think love is. Love is not something that we get to decide for ourselves. When Jesus is talking about it anyway, that's not what he means. It's not self-defining. It's not a word that, that just means whatever it means, depending on who says it. And it's not abstract. It's not a complicated idea that we just can't possibly even begin to fathom. Love, as Jesus teaches, is bound to our understanding of how he loves. Love as I have loved you. And the images, I think, seared on the minds of his friends at this dinner. When he says, love each other as I have loved you, the images seared on their minds would have been him getting down on his knees and washing their feet just an hour or two before that moment. This, this rabbi, this teacher, this one that they believed was the king, the Messiah, coming from God, he walks in the room and he undresses, wraps a towel around his waist and gets down on the ground and starts washing their feet and it weirds them out. I should wash your feet. And he says, love as I have loved you. And in a matter of hours, he would be murdered publicly on a cross on their behalf, his life for theirs. And sandwiched between this sort of washing of feet and life, giving his life for them, he says, love each other as I've loved you. 
This is the message we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And, and for each of us, of course, the question is, do we, do, we, do we love one another? Do you, friend? Beloved of God, do you love others as Jesus has loved you? This is gonna get, this is, this is stern and stuff, and I'm just gonna ask some questions, and I'm, I, and I, if we're honest, it stirs up a lot of stuff. Just stick with me, okay? It's uncomfortable. But do you love your roommates? Do you love your roommates? As Jesus has loved you, do you love your roommates? Do you love your parents? Do you love your friends? Do you love your teachers, your professors? What about your enemies? Do you love them as Jesus has loved you? All sorts of ways I can word this from the scriptures because we, not having the right to define it ourselves by the grace of God, it has, we have a picture of it in Christ and it's been expressed to us in his friends. Do we lay down our lives for these people? Do I lay down my preferences for theirs? Do I give up my rights? Not just on a whim, but do I give up my rights in order to affirm your dignity and worth? Am I patient? Are you? Are you kind? Oh, how cool it would be if Christians were kind. How wonderful would it be if every Christian you met was kind? That's, it's a weird word. It's probably like a word that like my eighth grade teacher wouldn't let me write in a paper because it's such a silly like nonsense word. But how powerful would it be if every person who said they were a Christian was kind? Do you surrender your envy of your brother and sister and instead seek their benefit? Do you do that for your roommates and for these people you see on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchats? Do you do that with your siblings? Do you surrender your envy and instead seek their benefit? Do you surrender resentment and pursue reconciliation? Do you have a never-ending hope? Do you believe over and over and over and over again? These phrases and these words that I'm using right now are pulled right from the pages of Scripture. Do you love like Jesus loves you? If we, if any of us for just a moment actually intend to do this, if we're honest, it's super difficult. It is really hard. And and if we're honest, I think for almost all of us in this room, maybe all of us, we meet these questions and these insistences of Jesus, these commands of Jesus, we meet them with, with a little bit of resistance. Over and over again in the life of Jesus, I think his call to love is met with resistance. He, he talks about reconciliation at one point and somebody says, Peter, as a matter of fact, he's usually the one doing this sort of thing. He says, he says okay, Jesus, if somebody uh, keeps uh, sort of sinning against me, how many times do I need to forgive him? Like seven? Which... When I read it on the page of scripture, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can minimize the stories. I can make them sound like fables or little poetry things or something like this, and the impact of it doesn't work. Can you imagine, you probably can, um, a roommate or a sibling that has sinned against you the same way for seven times in a row? I, I, I think Peter, when he said seven, was already thinking that's a pretty ridiculous amount of times. Probably like, you know, once, like, you know, shame on you, twice shame on me, right? So three's crazy. Let me double that and add one. 
Okay, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive him? Seven times? You know what he says? He says 70 times seven. That's how, you forgive as much as they sin against you. Continue to forgive and forgive and forgive. When Jesus calls his people to love in a certain way that we, that's met with resistance because it's crazy. You're asking me to forgive over and over and over again? At one time, uh, Luke, account, Luke recounts when um, the, the sort of summary of the law was communicated. There was a lawyer actually in the midst of the disciples uh, and, and who stood up and wanted to sort of test Jesus. Um, and that's where Luke accounts for how we hear this story um, or this idea that the law, and the, the law and the prophets are summarized in loving God and loving others, right? And it says, love your neighbor, that's what he says. And, and the, uh, this lawyer says that. And Jesus says, you're right, go now and do it and you will live. And the lawyer, and Luke actually tells us this is the lawyer seeking to justify himself. That's what, that's what Luke says. And even if he didn't have that language, I think we could read it into the text. We, we would know this, that when Jesus affirmed that this is how all the law and the prophets are summarized, love God and love neighbor, that of course the question that comes up is, well, who's my neighbor? Because that's an intense command. That I have to love everybody, I love my neighbors, so I just wonder who my neighbors are. Because surely you don't mean this person, right? And the, the famous, very famous story follows on the heels of that question, of the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus turns the whole question on its head and he doesn't even answer who the neighbor is. He says the person in the story that's the central figure of the story is a good neighbor. In other words, disciple, lawyer, challenging me, justifying yourself. When you ask who is my neighbor, it should be everybody. Because if you've got a glimpse of who I am, I am moving into the neighborhood and making everybody my neighbor. And if you're gonna be like me, you do the same. And it's met with resistance. The, the, the unbelievably beautiful and powerful and magnificent uh, uh, account of Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapter five through Matthew chapters five through seven. He says this insane thing: love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is there not something inside of us that when we hear these kinds of things, keep forgiving, never stop. Keep forgiving. Never stop. Everybody's your neighbor. Love everybody. Love your enemies. Pray for those. Who is persecuting you? Pray for those people. Pray for them. You can also pray that they would stop persecuting you, but also pray for them. Who among us doesn't resist that just a little? But hear this again. Love as Jesus loved you. Now, I gotta stop for a second. The assumption in Jesus' words is that the disciples know Jesus' love. The assumption is that they've seen Jesus love them. So when he says, love as I have loved you, that they're able to know, they recall, they have in their mind, oh, this is how Jesus loves me and I'm supposed to love like he loves. Their feet are clean because of him. He'll tell them shortly in John chapter 15, just a little bit later in the same dialogue, that their whole selves are already clean because of him. They may not believe that, but he tells them this is true. You have seen my love for you, friends. Now go and do likewise to others. And so I have to say this, and I have to say, if you don't know the love that Jesus has for you, it's impossible to live out his commands. If you do not know how much God loves you, you cannot follow those commands. If you tonight don't know how much God loves you, you don't need to hear me say, go love others like he loves you. Or if you do, it's a nonsense command because you don't believe he's loved you. If you don't know that, I encourage you, I implore you, go 
fine, talk to somebody in this room that knows Jesus. Let us tell you about how much God loves you. Better, let us show you how much God loves you. Last week, I'm I'm sort of capitalizing on the sermon last week because last week, the the thrust of the sermon was here's how much God loves us that he would call us his children. Without a knowledge of how much we're cared for by him, it makes no sense to give our lives away. If I don't think that he actually has me safe, if I don't think he actually cares for me and will sustain me, I'm not going to give of myself. But assuming, and this is the assumption in his line, assuming that we know something of God's love for us and his son, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And I wanna argue that he insists on this so much for two reasons. Why does Jesus want us to love others so much? First, is a big sentence, but the testimony of the gospel hinges upon our love for each other. The testimony of the gospel hinges upon our love for each other. Let me ask you a couple questions. What do you think makes it obvious that you're a Christian? Think about this for a minute. What makes it obvious? What is it that people should see in you or around you or of you that makes them go Christian? Is it your Bible study? That you sit in a coffee shop like a yuppie Christian and read a Bible? open on a table, and they see that and they go Christian. Is that it? Is it that on your Instagram posts, there's, there's a sunset and a Bible verse on it, and they see that and they go, must be a Christian. Is that it? Is it a picture of you at youth camp? That's how everybody knows that, I'm, that I am a Christian. Perhaps for us, we think maybe it's our righteous actions, The fact that I do certain things or I don't do certain things. People should see that. They should see my abstaining from certain things. Sex, drug, and rock and roll, of course. You know, they'll they'll see me abstain from those things and they'll know I'm a Christian or they'll see me do certain things. You know, hey, I get up like 30 minutes early, you know, and I actually actually am, um, instead of going to a coffee shop, I actually believe I'm a minimalist because I think Christians should be a minimalist. And so I make really cheap coffee in like this, you know, handcrafted like paper that's not dyed um, at home. And I sit down and I read on the cheapest possible Bible I can find this thing in like a quiet, dark corner with like a hemp blanket. And, and when my roommates get up, I'm like, hey, you want to make a cup of coffee? And they're like, no, it's going to take you 45 minutes, you know? Um, like, is it, like, is it because I get up early and I just want them to see me spending my Devo time with God that that's what's going to make them know I'm a Christian. Is that it? <laughs> sorry, I didn't write any of that down. I just decided to punch somebody. I'm really sorry. Um, sorry, it's really great that you do that. It's, uh, it's not my bag, but I probably should make it my bag. Um, I need to spend less on coffee. Um, uh, for some of us, I think it's our history or, or our plans for our future. And there's a number of things. What is it in your life that you think? All of us have this thought if we're a Christian. There's something that you're doing or not doing, saying or not saying, something you believe, something that, that you think people ought to see and go, that, that makes you a Christian. What makes it obvious? If your roommates or your parents or the person next to you in the pew right now is to know you're a Christian, what will they see? Will you throw that second slide up for me, buddy? John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this, 
all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one another, if you have love for one another. Over and over, I've stated these words. You can just keep that up. Over and over, I've stated this first verse here tonight. The Lord's words that we must love one another, but did you see what he said next? Your love for each other. The way that you love each other. This is how people are gonna know that you're my disciples, your love for each other. Jesus, friends, Jesus is sending his people out into the world so that the world would see them and come to a knowledge of Jesus. And this is how they're gonna know Jesus in us, by our love and our unity. Here he says all people in the same conversation, just a few chapters later in John in 17, he uses the phrase, the world, the whole world will know that you sent me. By their unity, by their love, by how they love one another, this is how people will know this. The way that you love your Christian brothers and sisters impacts the way or impacts whether or not people will come to a knowledge of Jesus. I gotta say, I, I need you to hear that. I don't know what you think people are supposed to see that makes them go, oh, Christian. Jesus would have it be your love for other Christians. For me, I had this whole season of my life, just as a confession, uh, where when I was a, a, particularly a sophomore and junior in college, particularly, um, I sort of came into college as this um, very uh, proud cynic um, and, and I really loved uh, all my friends who were atheists and agnostics. Uh, I sort of was an absolute nerd. I still am. That's not like a, I'm not trying to like say I was. I still am a nerd. But, um, but I was a very particular kind of nerd at that point, uh, fixing computers and playing video games and working in like IT departments and hung out with atheists and agnostics. And, uh, and it was everybody drank Mountain Dew and stayed up all night. Um, and that's probably just the easiest way to summarize it. Um, but, but I loved hearing them say, you're not like other Christians. I loved, I loved it when I could tell them like, oh my gosh, like, uh, you know, the church, ugh. And, and somewhere along the way, this stuff started hitting me. Somewhere along the way, I read in the Bible that Jesus calls the church his bride. And I thought, am I gonna have to stand before the most powerful husband in the world and answer for speaking trash about his wife? Really, I mean, it's just like, it just sat on me and I went, oh. And I start looking at verses like this and I go, this is how God wants me to be known, not because of my intellectual rigor and my ability to see the faults of the church, which is how I wanted to be known as a sophomore in college, it really is. Jesus would have me be known by my love for others and he would have you be known by that too. Let me put it this way. Let's say that you know that sometime today I had this significant time of solitude with my hemp blanket and, uh, and, and, I, and I prayed with God this morning and then, and then you know, uh, somewhere throughout the day I read the scriptures sort of devotionally on top of just reading them for this sermon. I like, did both, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I, I gave money to the poor, but not like because I was even going out of my way. I just was moved with compassion between, of course, a coffee shop and my car. Um, and, and I gave, you know, sort of money to the poor. And I come here and just hypothetically, I just preached the best sermon ever. And then I actually invite you over to my house after this to come for dessert and another cup of coffee. And I do all of these things that you look at and, and, and our culture looks at and they go, wow. And at my house, there in my home, when you come over, you see me not love my wife very well. I do all these things that you look at and you're like, man, that dude is a Christian. 
And you come over to my house and all of the stuff that I did throughout the day. You see me not love my, li- my wife very well. And sitting there next to us in the awkwardness and uncomfortability uh, of a marriage or, or really any two people that are in a family together, brothers and sisters or anything like that, you see me be unkind or rude or impatient or selfish, irritable with Anna. And you would see that everything I did throughout the day didn't amount to loving her. I really, really, I mean, would you not in that moment, like in that very moment, would you not doubt the sincerity of the rest of my day? Wouldn't there be something in you, even if you didn't put the right words to it, that goes, what's the point of your Bible study? What's the point of your prayers? What's the point of all this work? If, If the person that you're called to love the most, your wife, you can't love. And don't you think even this language is a prophetic language in the Old Testament? But I think it will ring true in all of our hearts if we can imagine that moment. That you witnessed righteous deeds all day long, right? Good-looking external deeds all day long. Christian-like things, right? I, I didn't lie, I didn't envy, I didn't lust, I didn't, you know, covet somebody's stuff. I didn't gossip, I didn't do any of these things. And you go, man, awesome. And you're at my house and you see me not love my wife or you see me not love my children or not love my brothers and sisters. Would you not think that all of my righteousness is just like filthy rags? Don't you see that? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's one of the greatest poems ever written. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Nothing. Why is it so important that we love others? <laughs> because our love for each other is how others will know that we belong to Jesus. Our love for each other is what helps an unbelieving world believe in Jesus. Why do we love others? Why does Jesus care about us loving others? Friends, if you want your roommates to know Jesus, if you want your parents to know Jesus, if you want your coworkers to know Jesus, if you want your roommate to know Jesus, you know, something like that. If you want your, your romantic interests to know Jesus so that you can be more romantic or something, I don't know. If you, if you want people to know Jesus, love one another. But there's another reason why there's so much emphasis on loving each other. It's for your sake, not just theirs. It's not just for others that Christ commands us to love people. It's for you. You might remember that he said we, when we pour out our life for his sake, he actually gives us life. That we lose our life for him and actually find it. Friends, you need to experience, you need it. You need to experience God sustain you and care for you as you love other people. You need to. And you need to experience the hope of the life to come. So uh, before, before each Tuesday, um, many of us gather here to pray at 7.15. Anybody's invited to come? Um, and this evening during that time, so many of my friends in the circle, <laughs> like everybody's talking over each other just to, 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 to communicate this almost in unity, uh, exhaustion and anxiety 
pressure, a lack of rest. Like, I mean, it was pro- there was about 30-some people here in the circle, and it seemed like half of the circle was talking at the same time, saying, oh my gosh, yes, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm, I'm burnt out already, I don't know how to continue, I just want rest. And everybody else was sort of like, you know? And I think because they're so exhausted, they just don't want to talk, you know? And, and I, I know that if you're feeling that way, right now, and this was really heavy on my heart earlier tonight, and it st- still is, I know if you're, if you're feeling that way, it's hard to hear a command, you know? It's hard to hear somebody say, do this. Why not me? Why can't I take care of myself, God? That sort of stuff comes up, you know? Why must you tell me to lift my eyes to those around me and give of my exhausted self to other people? Here's why. Because you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself, friends. You can't bring enough peace to your own anxieties or comfort to your own affliction. You can hide. You can numb. You can escape. You can ignore. You can get busy. There are all sorts of things you can do. I get that. But none of those things will address the actual needs that you have. They won't. You need help, and so do others. And in the crazy wisdom of God... I want to remind you that in the, midst of your, in the midst of your own exhaustion, there is this opportunity, and I know it sounds, for some of us, it's going to sound outlandish. I think it's the wisdom of God. In the midst of your own exhaustion, there is this opportunity. You can look out at other people and you can say, I too know exhaustion. <laughs> I know what you feel. And I know that you can't help yourself, and I don't know how I can help myself, but maybe I can help you. I know what you feel. Maybe I can come alongside you. Maybe in my desperation, maybe, I can come to know the God who can sustain me, the God whose strength is made perfect in my weakness. Can I tell you that when you love others for the sake of Christ and for their goodness, for 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 your brother and sister, for your enemy, for, for the dignity and worth of those people, your participation in the work of God because he wants to love them and his invitation for you to participate in that work is nourishment to your soul. But on this side of it, it sounds like a terrible gamble. I, I, I have nothing else to say to you other than how well is everything else working for you, really. And if it seems to be working for you, then there's nothing else that I can do probably other than just urge you and tell you this truth, that, that there is something of God that you will not know until you've risked it all to participate in his work. And you find him sustain you in your weakness. You find him meet you even as when, when, you, when I walk, when I go home and I'm done and I'm tired and all I wanna do is check out of everything and escape from everything or numb everything. And I don't know how to address and fix all that. I hear the spirit of God going, you don't know how to do any of this stuff for you, but here's what you can do. There's this girl and her name's Anna and she's really awesome and I love her. And you can love her right now. And I go, oh, but I don't wanna love me. You know, like, and I don't know how to do that and I don't know how to sustain that. I don't know how to fill that and it probably does actually sound that pitiful in my head. 
and I begin to go and whatever it is, I'm just gonna use an example. It could be anything, y'all. It could just be listening. That's actually probably what it should, that's probably what it should be, okay? Uh, but, but like but doing the dishes or, or just asking her how her day was or anything. And in doing that, it, it just sounds so dramatic, but I, if you guys are honest, you'll know the feeling. In doing that, in that moment of exhaustion, it feels like I'm just saying, well, I don't even matter, do I? I'm laying down all of what I want right now for you. And I look at her and I start listening and what I find is I didn't actually die. What I find is that it's, I don't actually feel less. I actually am invited into this work of God and in the midst of me not being able to sustain myself, he's using me for his kingdom work toward her. And there's something nourishing in that. His work of redeeming and radical self-love, this is what he's doing and he wants you to love others so that you might know him as you do it. When you do that, you will begin to know the heart of God for your friends, for your roommates, for your family, for these other people in your life. And it might actually be a little easier to trust him when you begin to see his heart toward others. And you might think, if God thinks this way about others, maybe he thinks this way about me too. But it, it, that's not the only way it's for you. There's something else that happens here that's a little easier to explain. You'll also know something else when you love others. You experience a foretaste of the promises of God a foretaste of the life to come. So get this, the community of God and his people together. This is the hope of the church. The community of God and his people, the dwelling of God and his people together on a new earth. That is the hope of the church. It's the promise of God. If you've never heard this, hear it now. The promise for Christians in Christ is not just material goods. It's not just the, 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 the salvation from hell or, or, or no pain or no death or something like this. The promises center all the way around God being with his people in community. The hope, the promise is primarily a relational promise. If you don't, I say this stuff all the time, I think I'm gonna keep saying it. If you don't wanna love another Christian for 30 minutes in the morning, why do you think you're gonna like doing that forever and ever with no end? My love for my brothers and sisters actually reassures my heart that the substance of my hope is coming. I have this moment in loving others where my knowledge of God's love grows in me because I share in his work and because I get a glimpse of what's coming. Love one another. Love one another that others might know God and that we ourselves might know him and experience his love in our midst. This is why he asks us to love one another and how good is Jesus that he would want those things for us, that he'd want his people to help others know his love. And he would want you, his people, to know how much he loves you. That's why he's actually saying, get out and love other people. Beloved, let us love one another, not in word or in talk, but in power and in truth and in deeds. Let us love one another like Jesus loved us, I do think this requires that we have a knowledge of how Christ loved us. And so the work before us often is fixing our minds, fixing our eyes, fixing our heart, fixing our hope, fixing our desperation, fixing the answer for our anxieties and the hope for, for, for rest upon Jesus, upon the kind of love that the Father has for us in him that he would call us children of God. And let us love like he's taught us with our whole lives for the sake of others. I gotta end. For the sake of our friends and our neighbors and our enemies, 
I pray that we might exemplify the love of God, that they might actually know him and that we might be encouraged by the work of God in and through us to the rest of the world. And we look forward, I hope, when that happens to a time when we will live this way forever, loving one another forever. I know that all of us are so mindful of how other people love us and God says, I want that to happen too, but you must let it go. I have called you to love others and let me love you and let me call all of these people out here to love you. You get to work loving others. For this is the message that we heard from the beginning. Let us love one another as he's loved us. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Good Father, again, I ask that you remind every single person in this room or teach them for the first time that you love them. And would you call to their minds the ways that you love them, the specific ways that you love them. And I pray by the power of your spirit that you would help everybody to believe, help their unbelief, help them believe that you can sustain them, that you can protect them, that they have no need to defend or justify or, or themselves, but that they can give of themselves freely because the creator of all the universe has said he is for them. And if you are for them, who could be against them? In the midst of a campus right now, what's full of exhaustion and anxiety, may we be people that move in love toward them casting our anxieties upon you, asking you to, to, to satisfy us instead of demanding that the person to our left or to our right satisfies us. And as we do that, Father, would you please, please, please make your strength perfect in our weakness. May other people see the love of your son through us and may you strengthen our belief and our faith in your love for us as we do it. Make us a people after your own heart. Teach us tonight, even in just the next couple of minutes as we sing another song and praise to you. Would you help us cry out to you, asking for reminders, asking for hope. Would you help us to follow in obedience your spirit's leading. Bring people to our mind that we can love right now and help us to just throw it all upon you, laying down our lives for their dignity, for their worth, and an affection for them. And I pray you'd help us do it together. Thank you, God, for this great, tremendous work that you call us to. And thank you for how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.